0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist and your host. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with Andrea Dunlop to discuss Munchausen by Proxy.
2: You know, for offenders and for people that that have Munchausen, it's like the entire rest of their identity falls away. We grew up with this person who we knew and loved, who had, you know, they had all these other things about them. They had other hobbies. They had a personality. They had this, that, and then over the years, that just it all became about illness.
1: Andrea Dunlop is an author and consultant based out of Seattle, Washington. She is a member of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children's Munchausen by Proxy Committee and is the co-creator of Munchausen Support, which is dedicated to providing resources for frontline professionals, families, and survivors dealing with Munchausen by Proxy. On today's episode, we're discussing her new podcast, Nobody Should Believe Me. It's an unprecedented look at a complex and deadly form of abuse told from the perspective of those whose lives were turned upside down by it. I hope you enjoy my interview with Andrea as she shares her vulnerable story and her connection to Munchausen by proxy. Light and love and onto the show. Thank you so much for being with me and sharing yourself with my audience. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yay. So let's just start with what is Munchausen's and then what is Munchausen's by proxy? Yes. So
2: Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy are under the umbrella term of factitious disorders and So um, Munchausen, uh, which is also known as factitious disorder, is when someone exaggerates, induces, or invents an illness in themselves specifically for the emotional reward of getting attention and sympathy. Munchausen by proxy or factitious disorder imposed on another, which is the technical term, bit of a mouthful, that is when someone does it to someone in their care for, again, that same intrinsic reward. And that is mostly mothers of small children, though it can be, um, you know, elderly folks or disabled folks or anyone really who's, who's vulnerable and under someone else's care.
1: So share with us a little bit of how you came to have a passion for helping people with this disorder and the people affected by this disorder.
0: Well,
2: unfortunately, I have a personal history with this. So my older sister has been investigated for Munchausen by proxy abuse twice. I do want to include the caveat that she has never been charged with a crime. But basically, she fell out with my entire family over the first investigation, which happened almost 12 years ago now. So that is what it sort of got me interested in this topic. I will say I didn't really want to touch it for a really long time. I, for many years, I did not want to, you know, she she made that decision to to cut us out of her lives and and out of and out of her her children's lives. And so I that was obviously very painful. And so for a long time I just didn't want to think about it, didn't want to talk about it, really wasn't, you know, didn't necessarily tell a lot of people in my life about what happened unless they they had known me during that time. And then things really shifted for me when I became a mom myself. So I have a four-year-old and a seven-month-old. And when I was pregnant with my daughter, my eldest, I, I'm a novelist. That's my primary gig. And I started writing a novel that really... I realized right away was going to be drawing on that experience. And I think when you're when you're a novelist, you know that I think this is probably true for most artists, like you know that eventually you're gonna get around to writing about whatever it is that is your like sort of big, bad, you know, dark. Thing. And for me, obviously, this was mine. So, you know, I I started working on the novel We Came Here to Forget, and that came out in 2019 when my daughter was less than a year old. (laughs) So that was an intense experience. And then, you know, after that, I was doing some press about the book and being, you know, really talking publicly for the first time about the fact that I had a connection to it and wanting people to know that that novel came from, you know, a place of personal experience because I really take a lot of issue with the way that this topic is presented in a lot of media and pop culture. So that was very important to me. And through the course of doing some interviews, a journalist called Devorah Myers, who wrote a really fantastic piece about uh, her experience with someone who has factitious disorder. So Munchausen, someone who had a cancer hoax. She introduced me to Dr. Mark Feldman because she had spoken to both of us for her piece. And, And so I got to know him. And that was really a connection that changed my life. He's an amazing person. He's one of the top experts in the world. He's been studying it for 35 years or something like that. And we became friends. We started doing a lot of media together. He's the one who introduced me to the APSAC committee, which I am now a member of. So that that I think it it just sort of happened bit by bit. You know, I can tell you, Nikki, like this whole process has been a a matter of like, you know, okay, I'm going to write this novel about it. And then I'm done with this. I don't want to like interact with it anymore. And then it's just sort of, you know, the next thing happened and the next thing happened. And I think it it's... I think a lot of us feel when we've been through a particularly hard thing that we want to use that experience to help others if we can. But the path is not always immediately clear on how to do that. And I think it took me it took me a long time to figure out how I could sort of be helpful to this group of experts and be helpful to people who had been through it. And so I've been I've been figuring it out as I
1: as I go. I'm relieved to hear you share in the way that you're sharing. Because part of why I wanted to have you on is because I think we're living through this time with social media where, I mean, this is the time of attention seeking. And I know in my own life, having a very dysfunctional family, one of the only times that I got some kind of soft, kind attention from my mother was when I was sick. So I think I have a a real soft spot in my heart for understanding how this type of issue can develop, because at face value, it's kind of shocking, like to learn that someone would make themselves sick. And sometimes it's drinking bleach and, you know, like in injecting detergent into your body. I mean, it's things that sound so kind of bizarre when we just look at the the surface level of of what's going on. And I think when we're kind of healthy or grounded or don't have, any kind of personal experience with this, it just kind of sounds like way out there. And and I expect, my my prediction, which I wish wasn't my prediction, was that this attention-seeking online, even in advocacy, it, in so many things, is is glorifying being sick. I'm seeing that in mental health. It's a fine line for me between advocating for good mental health and sort of over-identifying with illness and what i see online is mm, not a great delineation or a boundary between those two things and so i expect issues like munchausen and munchausen by proxy to really be growing is is that what you're seeing in your work <laughs>
2: Yeah, unfortunately you're completely correct and one of the fantastic experts that we talked to on the show Dr. Kaufman who is the child abuse pediatrician at Cook uh, Cook Children's in Texas where the story that we cover on the podcast takes place, you know, she is she is incredibly well versed in the subject matter and she and and all the other experts that I've talked to have have really said that we cannot overstate how much worse this problem is made by a internet access to all of this information, all of the information about every disease you could possibly imagine is a Google away It used to be in the old days. When people did this behavior, they had to do a lot of research and it was work intensive. It is no longer the case that it used to be a lot mostly medical professionals, nurses, et cetera, who would carry out these behaviors. Now it can really is just very accessible and easy to pull off. And then the, you know, as you said, the sort of the, the source of attention, like the, the possible sources of attention are infinite now, whereas they used to be sort of confined to people that we've known in our real lives. And I really want to touch on something that you started off with there because I really appreciated the fact that you mentioned that relatable part of this experience because I think one of the biggest problems with the way it's portrayed is that Usually, number one cases are only covered in the media when the child dies. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I I think those cases should get coverage, but I, you know, it's that's that makes it seem a lot more rare than it is, and um, and also they're frequently only covered. You know, the other the other instances that are covered are when there's criminal charges, which again is very rare. And so I think you know having that sort of gruesome, uh, kind of monstrous tone to the coverage allows people to put some distance between themselves and this issue. Right. To say like, well, that would never happen in my family and that would never happen to someone I know. Like this is a crazy lady who is, you know, flagrantly psychotic and you would see her from a mile away. And that's just not the case at all. And I think it really does help to, you know, in our understanding of like why people would do this because I think that understanding why is really the pathway to accepting that it exists. I think if people can't wrap their head around why someone would do this, then they're just going to say, well, that can't be it. She must really be, you know, she must really be sick or she must really have a sick child because why would anyone ever do this? If we sort of stay in that place where we're just so baffled by the behavior, then I think that we never sort of get there. We never cross that bridge to accepting that it's real. And I see that a lot. And I I like that you brought it down to earth and I I frequently use that example, right? Like I, we can all relate to, I mean, especially unfortunately if you have, you know, dysfunctional family, but even in, you know, a a perfectly like healthy, loving family, we can all relate to that nice part of being sick, I guess, Mm -hmm. where you're getting to, you know, take a little break from life and you're getting a lot of care from people around you. And, you know, I think like when people go through, you know, big illnesses like cancer, you see communities rally around them and that, of course, that's a really beautiful thing, you know, like I think we can all understand if we take a step back, like what the emotional reward is for that. And I think um, I think that's really important. I think we need to to understand that, like, this is not this is something that's just like it, it's 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 in. It's a very extreme version of a behavior that actually is pretty relatable. And the same thing with attention seeking. I mean, I think humans need attention. We need connection. Mm -hmm. That's a very like, I think sometimes attention seeking has such a negative connotation, but it's something that we all naturally do. It's something that it's a human need. And so I think like that in and of itself is not a bad behavior. I think it's the deception that is the really, you know, that is the wrong part—that's the part of this that's really, that's really wrong—and and makes it, you know, in the case of Munchausen by proxy, a crime.
1: Yes, yeah, I think that's a—that's even a bigger societal issue of when, when we're looking at things through lenses of what's extreme. It really robs us from being able to see the nuance. Kind of what you're saying about how communities come together, like when somebody has cancer. It reminds me of when I'm teaching boundaries. It's kind of what I'm known for what I put out there I teach boundaries and and most people don't allow themselves any kind of boundary until they're so fed up they're so angry they're so at the end of their rope and I I think that parallels what you're saying about care like yeah we all come out of the woodwork you know when somebody's really really struggling um I'm from the Gulf Coast I'm from Louisiana so it's same thing with hurricanes right like man the best of humanity shows up when we are just absolutely struggling and in crisis and something's really wrong or somebody's really sick or there's been a real um, tragedy or natural disaster. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Yay, humans. But I think we really do a kind of collective crappy job showing up for ourselves and each other before we're desperate, before it's really bad, before we're fed up, before somebody's... On their deathbed or have a terminal illness. And I think handling issues like Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy really takes a nuanced look at what is developing. What is developing? You're absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with attention. We need attention. There is a lot of appropriate attention that we need to learn how to receive sort of in the light. But this is part of why I am so anti victim mentality because it's such a slippery slope to start getting attention for being victimized instead of for pulling yourself up or getting or getting well or trying something new. And I think we don't do a good job of looking at that slippery slope. When you just look at the sort of end result of something like Wunchausen and see the horror of what is happening there and don't kind of pull back, zoom out and go, how did this develop? Because there were some moments where, it was slight or it was less than and it was just getting a little bit of attention and charge. And it's like a train that starts to get out of control and, and run down the track. So what do you want to share with us? Like, I don't even want to kind of direct the conversation. Like, what, what do you think is important <laughs> about this?
2: I mean, I think that the, <laughs> the first step is I just really want people to wrap their heads around the fact that this happens. I think the big surprise for me of making the show and of really, you know, broadening my own scope of experience with this right beyond my sort of N of one of just having this experience with my sister being investigated and, and some of those, you know, previous behaviors that I talk about in the podcast where, you know, she had these Munchausen behaviors like shaving her hair off in high school and faking a pregnancy and that kind of thing. You know, it is so hard to wrap your head around. It's hard to wrap your head around when you're in it and certainly when my family was going through this i felt like we were the only people on earth this had ever happened to i knew that couldn't be the case but it's not something that you know previous to the ones that a colleague and i are running now there were not support groups for this there were not really very many resources you know dr feldman and his website was really that was it so you know i think what i've come to realize is that all of the experts i talk to believe this is way more common than than what's being reported a lot of the media coverage of this There is a really unfortunate trend of media stories right now about women who have been, quote, falsely accused. Um, When I read between the lines of those stories, that is not my takeaway. And a lot of these pieces really excoriate the doctors and really go after them and have made it sound like we're somehow in this climate where doctors are just accusing people of this willy nilly and taking their kids away. That is not how it works. It is very, very, very hard to actually separate someone from their kids on this issue. That's not to say that false accusations never happen. Of course they do. Any crime in existence, you're going to have false accusations. I think a false conviction on this, or like a case that went very far where there was nothing going on, I I don't think, that. I think that is vanishingly, vanishingly rare. And so I think I really want people to just, I'm hoping that I can sort of <laughs> Push people a couple inches closer to having that reckoning of that we've had to go through around things like sexual assault, right? Like, and I know, you know, you're a survivor, and and that's something that's close to your heart. And I'm sure a lot of your audience has, you know, those similar experiences and used to be decades ago that we just thought this was an incredibly rare thing. Whenever it was presented, it was, you know, presented as like, oh, it's a scary stranger waiting around the corner. And, you know, of course, what we know and sort of all culturally accept now is that sexual abuse happens in really intimate settings with people that you trust. And it's usually family members or coaches or, you know, people who are really trusted people. And I think those intimate crimes are really hard to accept. But we got there with sexual abuse, right? You had sort of these huge scand- like the Catholic Church and, you know, these things that just like brought about a cultural reckoning. And I think we're really in need of one of those for medical child abuse. Um, because right now, again, the vast, you know, the vast majority of media coverage presents it as, you know, rare and false accusations and and this and that. And of course, we, we all know, you know, intellectually that just because someone is not convicted and sent to prison does not mean that that's not an exoneration and i think like i i see that language used a lot in these pieces and it it that drives me nuts and that has that kind of coverage also has a chilling effect on reporting you know if doctors feel like they're going to lose their careers when they report someone and they're going to get dragged through the mud in the media and their lives are going to be made hell which definitely happens um they're going to be less inclined to report that's human nature so i think it's a scary situation i think kids in these situations are Um, You know, I think we need to like recognize the risk in our communities. It's the deadliest form of child abuse. And, and, and I think it's, it's happening. I mean, just from, from both talking to experts and just kind of my anecdotal experience from the last, you know, four years of my own life being they're talking about this. It's like, I've just heard from a lot of people. I know I heard from a lot of survivors. I've heard from a lot of people who just said, you know, after I listened to your podcast, I thought about that one Facebook friend, or I thought about that one cousin, or, you know, and it's, it's really like, I mean, even my own husband was like, you know, I always felt weird, this one sort of friend that I, you know, keep in touch with on social media, I always felt weird about the stuff she posted. And now I realize like, oh, my God, it could be this. And so I think, I think that that watershed moment hopefully is going to come sometime, but there's also a lot of resistance to it. So I hope that people will keep an open mind about this because the stakes are really high. You know, we're talking about kids' lives and well-being. That's something that <laughs> across the board we can all hopefully care about, right? I think this is like, this is a very apolitical issue, or at least it should be, Um and, you know, also for survivors, right? I mean, I think that's that's an important thing, too, because all the survivors I know, not a single one of them was permanently separated from their abuser. So most likely, you know, victims right now are going to be raised by their abuser, and they're going to need a lot of help once they get out of that situation. And so I think it's also about helping survivors, you know, figure out how to put themselves back together and helping them get the support they need. and And also just making people understand that they're not alone because as I sort of set out on this to try and meet some other people who had some personal experience with this, every single person I talked to hadn't talked to someone else who'd been through it. Nobody else had connected with a fellow family member or a fellow survivor. Um, You know, some of the dads had had met each other through some of the committee folks, but I mean, that was, that was it. So I think, you know, those, those connections and, and sort of sharing that experience with each other is, is really important
1: too. I am so relieved to hear you share what you're sharing. One of my struggles being a mental health professional, and I'm I'm 17 years into being in mental health, is what you just said about this feeling that we get. And I think in in something like Munchausen, that's where it starts. Those of us that are around this dynamic, we're going to get a funny feeling. And in my field. There's something missing. You said your own anecdotal experience. Yes, science is important and studying things is important. I'm not saying this to the dismissal of research and study and science, but we're human beings. And I think because of this sort of beating the drum of science the last 30 years, we really have gotten away from just some common sense, human, intuitive, grounded relating and trusting our guts. So I'm kind of walking this line as a human being, as a person, as a professional, even as a podcaster, bringing stories and sharing information and trying to talk through the nuance of what it is to really heal, what it is to really let go of our immaturity and really mature on the individual level and collectively as a culture. And if we poo and dismiss our gut feelings, I think that's a really dangerous thing for the, the children that are around us. I also know that in my own story, living with my abuser, living with two abusers, my mom being a sociopath and a narcissist, my, my dad who adopted me being the sexual abuser and ultimate pedophile in my life, Once the story came out, and my story hit the news when he was arrested in my early 20s, it was very overwhelming. So because of that, people came out of the woodwork. And and one of the things that hurt me the most was hearing people kind of nonchalantly, though this wasn't a nonchalant topic, acknowledge that they had always kind of had the feeling that something was wrong in my household. And to a young person coming out of the insanity of being abused in your home where that is supposed to be your sanctuary and your safe place, and these are supposed to be your safe people, the insanity of pulling your head out of that situation, and frankly, looking around, I was enraged and hurt to my core hearing that from people as a younger woman. Yeah, I kind of knew, but... You know, the societal sort of agreement we have that it's not my business. I just shouldn't pay any attention to that. I mean, we have to work in the realm of everything is always going to be imperfect as we relate to each other, y'all. But that was such a big betrayal of the human tribe on top of the betrayal of the family I was born into. That really, if anything came close to me, actually. Allowing suicidal ideation to take a hold of me, that was a big player. And so as a as a person in the world, I made a real commitment to myself. Oh, it's gonna make me cry. I made a real commitment to myself that I was willing to be unliked. Like I was willing to be wrong. I I was willing to be scapegoated. I was willing to be hated, but I would always be the person. That if I had the sense, even if I couldn't put my finger on what was wrong, that I would open my freaking mouth for that child. Because even if I couldn't change what was going on for that child, that child would grow up and know somebody said something for me. And I really think that is something that is missing. And I think we're so scared to sort of overstep that sometimes we don't step up where we really could. Yeah.
2: Oh, you're gonna make me cry too, Nikki. <laughs> um a few things. I mean, I'm so glad that you said all of that. And I think there are a lot of parallels with what you went through and what Munch has my proxy survivors go through. Now, I have, you know a group of them that I'm close to, and one in particular who i've who've talked a lot to, and they are very interesting and we will probably end up doing an entire season on on their story. So I want to say, I mean, first of all, there are a lot of parallels here. There are some very specific things that Munchausen by proxy survivors go through in terms of their medical stuff, interacting with doctors trusting their own body, understanding their own feelings about being sick that are sort of very specific to Munchausen by proxy. But a lot of this, you know, our are, are shared experience with other abuse survivors and also the element of narcissism. Narcissistic personality disorder has a very high rate of comorbidity, which is probably a term your audience is going to be familiar with, but just in case mm-hmm. means coexistence with Munchausen by proxy. All of those tasty cluster B personality disorders, narcissistic personality disorder or borderline.
1: You have to have a lowered empathy
0: to be, be
1: able to, and that's what narcissism is essentially. It is a right. low empathy to no empathy disorder. Right,
2: right. Yes. And I think this is on the extreme end of no empathy. And I think you, when you think it through, it would have to be, right? I mean, mm-hmm. those, those of us that are parents, To be able to do that to your own child is so unthinkable. And I think that's why people, you know, have such a hard time. But I think exactly what you said, that coming out of the situation and especially because and I think, again, this is probably a shared experience with abuse survivors where but I think it's especially true for Munchausen by proxy because of the sort of the deception and the sort of hoax element of, of it all. Abusers will really, really isolate their victims. They will cut off Anybody that questions them. So, whether that is moving from doctor to doctor to doctor, doctor shopping is the term for it, because if a doctor catches on, they're out of there. Or if a doctor Mm -hmm. doesn't give them the diagnosis they want, they're out of there. Family members who question, spouses who question, teachers who question, anybody who questions you gets cut off. That person is the enemy. Um, So, they are systematically separated from people who could intervene. And also, there is this you know, one of the things that survivors really struggle with is their own idea of themselves. You know, you were sort of talking about people over identifying with being sick or having something wrong with them or sort of, you know, like I see a lot of like <laughs> TikTok pathologizing of certain yes. care. You know, it's like, well, boy, that's like a whole other, um, that's a whole other ball of wax. But, you know, for for survivors, they've been told their whole life that many of them that There is something wrong with them. They will never lead a normal life. They are going to die young. They are at risk of death all the time. They cannot do X, Y, Z thing. You know, oh, you can't do sports. You can't do this. You have a balance disorder. You have a brain, you know, just
1: on and on and on. I mean. And therefore, you also need a savior. Right, right. And that is why you need me. And
2: I am the I mean, one of the things that you see just in reports, just like that comes up over and over again is this phrasing. I'm the only one who has advocated for my child. I'm the only one that can help my child. I'm the only one who really understands their issues and their needs. So it's like, you are broken. You are sick. I am the only one who can help you. And And then, you know, they put them in special schools, they put them, you know, give them individualized Mm -hmm. education plans, they just separate them from their peers in all of these, you know, really detrimental ways. And so, exactly right. Once survivors come to realize, you know, and it's usually in their 20s or beyond when they really are able to have some distance from their abuser. And once they realize what's happened to them, they do feel a tremendous sense of betrayal at their father, if their father whether their father is was a sort of you know part, father that stood by and just watched it happen, which happens a lot, or even if they were separated from their father, but they've been led to believe that their father doesn't care about them, you know, from family members, from doctors, like there's a huge sense of betrayal of like, why didn't anyone do anything? And so I think for the survivors that have been able to retrace their steps and reconnect with people, get back in touch with their doctors and realize that people tried, even if they weren't successful, if people tried that means something, you know, that, that means something to them. And they realize that like, Oh, they just were up against it. And so I think like, you know, I will say like, I I did not ever imagine talking about my family in this way that I have been doing about like these really personal (laughs) things that happened in my family. Um, And it is not to be sort of at odds with my own sister in this way is really (laughs) a nightmarish situation. And Certainly, I know I have been, I am the enemy in that household. And that is not something that I that I ever could have imagined when I was younger. And it's not something I ever wanted. And I have thought through very, very hard and very long about my motivations and making sure that they were sound. And part of my motivation, Nikki, honestly, is that my niece and nephew are going to grow up mm-hmm. and... I want them to know that I didn't choose to be out of their lives. I want them to know that I didn't just disappear and never think about them again.
1: Well, no wonder we clicked. I I think we are (laughs) spiritual sisters in that sense. (laughs) I am also the enemy in, in my sisters' households. You know, I am the scapegoat. How dare I speak out about these things? And and this is this is a hard dilemma for people with with big hearts about finding the ways to be respectful of somebody else's life and and privacy, but also it's, it's my story. It's your story too. And finding the strength to give permission to be able to speak on that. Um, I've had the same thoughts about, I have five nieces and nephews who don't know me, who will never get to know me. And I, I don't believe that they will get any kind of semblance of a straight story about why I'm not in their lives and why I went away and why I'm so different than everybody else that they know. And, and this is part of growing up, I think with some real dysfunction in a family too, it is, it is such a, that term Sophie's choice about kind of staying quiet and taking that load, that road of maybe less resistance versus finding some courage to really speak out to break these dynamics, not just for people that are listening, but so that those children grow up and have something if they ever want to reach out and see it and have a different perspective offered. And I think it's always a hard, a hard line to walk. I have to give myself a lot of permission to kind of own my story and and put it out there, knowing that there's a lot of players that are very angry about me having the. the they would say the gall to open my mouth about, about these things. So maybe that's a part of why we, we clicked.
2: I think so. I mean, certainly everything that you're describing to me really, really resonates. And I think it is so complicated. And I think like, I always, we live in sort of highly confessional times with social media and TikTok and so many ways to sort of share your story. And I think that, you know, I think that there's a lot of good there. But I also think that a lot of damage can be done. And I think people need to make sure that they're ready for what that experience is going to be like. And something that I recognize, honestly, you know, because because the vast majority of these because the vast majority of these situations do not end in a criminal conviction. That makes them legally difficult to talk about. And so people can face all kinds of pushback. And obviously, then if you're a doctor involved in some of this, one of these situations and your name's being dragged through the press or through the mud in the press, you can't say anything because of HIPAA. So it's sort of a perfect storm for like only hearing one side of the story. And I don't think that every reporter who covers this And again, what I think is a totally improper context of false accusations and sort of like, you know, rogue doctors. So I think some of those reporters are doing it in bad faith. I think some of them are doing it in good faith and really just don't realize that they're in a situation where the other side can't say anything Um, and sort of, you know, and they're just they're just being, again, exploited by A manipulative person who is very, very good in some cases at getting people to buy their side of the story, right? I mean, a mother of a sick child who presents like a normal person, some of these people don't. I've definitely seen some offenders where it's like, oh, everyone knew something was off and people Mm -hmm. reported. And, you know, and I think it's also like, you know, we've sort of said, like, you know, it's not, it's not always just that people, don't want to say anything sometimes it's that sometimes it's just that like i can't get involved in this it's messy but sometimes people try and nothing happens you know it's very demoralizing to report and then realize that like okay now i'm on the hook and that person knows i reported them which is what happened with my family right like my and actually my my parents didn't didn't report but when in with my with my nephew 12 years ago My mom went and talked to our family doctor. Our family doctor said, what you are describing sounds like a possible case of Mm Munchausen by proxy. I think you should speak to this child's pediatrician. My mom got in touch with a couple of the doctors who she had met before because she'd been to a couple of appointments and said, here is this long history of other behaviors, the fake pregnancy, et cetera, that, you know, this is why we're concerned. This is what we're seeing. These are our concerns. We didn't know what was going to happen Next. What happened next was that it got sent up the chain and there was an emergency removal and we got a call, you know, of my brother-in-law screaming his head off that CPS had just come and taken their son away. We were terrified. We did not know that was going to happen. We did not report to CPS, did not, totally freaked out that CPS was involved. And we went through that whole thing. CPS revealed to the two of them that my mom had spoken to the doctors. So then from that
1: point, we were the enemy. When they're really not supposed to do that. They're really not supposed to. Yes. uh, Yes. Word to the wise. (laughs) That is not the thing. Yeah. You're supposed to be guaranteed anonymity there. Right. 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 So that was revealed to
2: them. And then we were the enemy and we were sort of forced to take a side rather than kind of you know, at least give the option of neutrality so that we could keep lines of communication open. Um, And that resulted in a several month long CPS investigation that did not end with any dependency charges. There were there was a dependency case in the second investigation that was many years later with my niece. But with this in this situation, didn't result in any charges, was basically dropped. And we, (laughs) my parents and I were looking at each other after this and say, we just blew apart our family and for what, you know, Mm -hmm. like that nothing happened. Like we were so naive going into that. I had not had any previous experiences with the family court system or CPS or anything. And we just thought, well, okay, we just completely annihilated our family for what? So I also like sympathize with people that don't want to re, Yeah. Because I think like the, the, the consequences of reporting, the consequences of speaking out publicly about it are very real. Sometimes they're emotional, sometimes they're financial, sometimes they're both, but they're very real. And I think people need to do it anyway, because I think at the end of the day, you have to remind yourself that if you think in particular, this kind of abuse is happening, then what we know is that the child's life is at stake. That is what hangs in the balance. So I think most of us would do just about anything.
0: Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you, and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms.
1: I I think that's what hinks us up as as human beings. I think on a subconscious level, when we're facing making a tough choice, I think we really want some kind of good choice and then some kind of like crappy choice. And we want to be able to deny the crappy choice and make the, the better good choice. And so many moments in life, like the real nitty gritty of being a human being, it's like, there's a shit choice and another shit choice in front of (laughs) you. Bad and worse. Yes. And, and that is such a, a hard thing. Now I have a lot of therapists who listen to emotional badass. And I know that I have reported on Munchausen by proxy before, and it was one of the weirdest, strangest experiences being a therapist. And I, I think sometimes like people, it's easier for people to think that therapists are almost like non-emotionally doing things like like reporting. And surely there's some of that out there just because that's part of the human condition. But for the most part, you get into this profession because you've got a big heart and you kind of want to do the right thing, whatever that is. And my experience of it, since there's a lot of therapists listening to was that, you know, I might go a year and not report to CPS. And then all of a sudden, I might have a few cases where I have to report. And I've reported in a handful of different states. So I'm highly familiar with the process. Unfortunately, it's another one of those things I wish I didn't have any experience in at all. But I do. And it happened to be that I reported on another case I reported on two cases in a month and I reported on another case where I was getting information that that a child's mother was letting um, inmates basically use her home after they left prison as like a halfway house. And these inmates were sleeping in the six year old's bed. I reported on that. Now, this was for a very poor family situation. I could not get CPS to go check on this child. I got told that was a cultural family bed type situation. I was like, that's not what's going on here. Please, please. I said everything that I could to try to get them to report in this child. And then weeks later, I reported on a Munchausen's case for really like white collar, a very nice ritzy neighborhood. And. Oh, my goodness, because that was sort of a different jurisdiction, I didn't I was working with the dad and I didn't prep the father because I had never seen it happen. The police like drove up on his house like six patrol cars, like like as if it was a hostage situation or something. And he came back to me basically going, Damn Nikki, I wish you would have like warned me that this was a possibility. I said, I had to tell him, you don't understand. Most of the time I report and I'm begging them to have that kind of response. And I get dismissed. And and here it is in this sort of white collar more more moneyed neighborhood and they're showing up. And then that family was very, very angry at me for sort of creating that chaos. And then the neighbors knew and and I don't think anything came of it. And so that was really, really hard for me because basically it wound up, in a way, dinging my client's trust in me to be able to work together when I have no control over how they show up. So there's so many dilemmas for the therapist involved in this and for when you sort of try to help that child through your client. I mean, it is messy. It is sticky. Um, the mother of that child tried to come after me. You know, it it's a very, very sticky thing, and we don't have a lot of support for therapists who are going through that. So you, Tell me the name of this organization that you are a part of and what kind of services you offer for professionals, for people that are going through this. Talk to me about what y'all have developed because there's not a lot out there. Like, Are y'all it? For getting help with this, pretty much, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yes.
2: So I will tell you about the organization. I also want to say that's really interesting story because, and and I should mention, like, this is a crime that that goes across economic lines, yes. racial lines, international. Like, yes. just an interview with a news station from Iceland yesterday. You know, I mean, like, it. This is this is cross cultural, right? Like, yeah. on, in always, this is a um, human really, problem,
1: like across yeah. the spectrum.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, and it's going to vary, right? It's going to vary on the CPS, the the wherever, you know, whatever state you're in, the specific inspector that you get, um, that person's supervisor, you know, um, the police officer that gets handed it. You right. know, I mean, it's like there's so many variables, right? But
1: like even how busy they are that day or that week plays hugely.
2: Oh, yeah. And I mean, these cases, one of the other things that always comes up is these cases are so much more complex and so much more time consuming than a normal child abuse case or uh, excuse me, a child abuse case of like abusive head trauma or sexual abuse or whatever.
1: Well, there, there's clarity. It's like if you see cigarette burns on a kid, like, right, you don't have a lot to sort through. Right. There, there's something right. very obvious and glaring about that. Right. But not in these cases. No, the no, life.
2: no. And it's so and, you know, I mean, the to say the medical records are voluminous i mean tens of thousands of pages that an expert has to go through and trying to find this pattern so i mean they are very 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 complicated cases and sometimes you know sometimes cps is less inclined correct what you said cps is less inclined to do something if it's in you know a poor neighborhood but also i will tell you that family court is often also more sympathetic to mothers who are middle class, upper middle class, yes. just look like a nice white lady that is yeah. yes, like trying no her best to take care of her kid and is or a, a nice lady of any race, really, who's like crying, saying, I'm I'm trying. I have this sick child and these people are attacking me. And, I mean, that's a very like we are so hard, hardwired to sympathize with yeah. that Seen and what we see before our eyes in that situation. And most of them, I mean, you know, there's a variation of personality types, but they don't seem crazy. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, like, if you were to meet one of these offenders, you would not be like, you would not immediately be like, holy moly, there's something going on with this person. More likely you would just be, I mean, my conversation with Hope Yabara, like I knew everything she'd done. I'd spent uh, years by that point, neck deep in her case, talking to her. It doesn't register that this is a dangerous person. It doesn't register that this is a mentally ill person. Like it just, she just seems nice and warm and sympathetic and she says the right things. And it's not until after where you're like, wow, you know, like I just, I was, I was in the bubble and, and certainly like, um, that's even more complicated if it's a family member or your wife or someone that, that you love.
1: (laughs) And this is the this is the case you go into on your show. So if you're interested in really, yes, yeah, the hope the hope you
2: borrow case,
1: yeah, yeah. So lots of learning available for y'all to go to. Nobody should believe me and listen to Andrea because that's, I mean, that is a real struggle. Like when we say that people with personality disorders are charming and are engaging really i mean even those of us that are trained to look for it and find it it that is the most mind boggling piece is that you can feel out and somebody can feel so sane and grounded and reasonable and have to go, wow, but their behaviors are anything but. It's like one plus one equals seven. And you have to yeah. try to make the math work. It is mind boggling. Yeah.
2: Really messes with your head. Yeah. And I think so in terms of like resources for therapists and anybody else who is is a professional in this, you know, who's in one of the helping professions and is likely to, to come across one of these, because I think that anybody who is interfacing with kids, anybody that's interfacing with mental health is going to see at least a case in the course of their career. And yes. again, like you said, that is a scary situation because you're like, oh, if I report this person, you're totally, what you describe as totally on par. They'll go after your medical license, they'll try, they are vindictive. Um, mm-hmm. That's part of the sort of personality disorder element of it. So, um, you know, but in terms of like what what support people can have. So we do have some, you know, one of the things I did with Mark Feldman that was one of my first sort of tasks when I joined this committee that I mentioned was to just Get all of the available resources together and put them in a, a readable, you know, accessible bullet pointed format to put them on the website. So Munchausen Support, we have a section for therapists, you know, we are adding to that as, as we go along. In terms of, in terms of actual support, you can contact us there if you have questions for people who are, you know, we hear from therapists sometimes. We hear from medical professionals. We hear from dads. We hear from survivors. We hear from sort of people across the spectrum. And, you know, what we sort of do with those is then refer them to that group of experts on the committee and see who is the best, you know, best, best equipped to help that person. And then also, you know, one of the, the, the 501c3 of end of Bunch House and Support is in its nascent stages. One of the things that we're doing right now is the survivor support groups I mentioned. So if you are a survivor or a family member, that is an option. And then also, you know, one of our big aims is to do professional trainings. Um, You know, we have folks like Mike Weber and uh, Mary Sanders, who I interview on the show, who they do a lot of trainings. And so if you are a therapist, if you are part of a group of therapists, if you are part of an organization and you are interested in having us come to a training, contact us at Munchausen Support and we will work with you to set that up because we are very, the entire sort of professional organization. And then especially the people who are working with me on the Munchausen Support, I have an amazing board. We are again, like a sort of micro, <laughs> micro nonprofit at this point, but, um, you know, we're, we're getting things up and going, but I have amazing, resources in terms of these professionals. And I think that was, that was sort of what came to, to, to be what came clear as I was, you know, having those experiences in the first meeting all these people and going to meet with the committee, I was like, okay, this can be my role. The rest of these people, they're, they're doctors, they're academics, they have PhDs, et cetera. But I can tell stories and sort of translate this into you know, information that is digestible by the public, right? Like, that's the thing I can do. I have a background as a publicist. So, you know, sort of condensing things into like readable, (laughs) readable formats and, and I'm a writer. So that's kind of, that's kind of what I can do. So, yeah, so, so we have those uh, available and we're certainly, we're, we're definitely willing to, you know, set up Zoom trainings and that kind of thing. So if you have an organization where you just want people to know, okay, like, what do I do? Like, what are the signs? What are the warning signs? What do I do if I suspect someone? We can definitely help with that.
1: Awesome. And I want to throw this in because I know people listening, this is a very proactive audience, and a lot of them are parenting and wanting to break cycles of dysfunction. And I just want to give a really, really general tip. Those of you who are reparenting your own inner child and those of you that are parenting kids, I think this is just good kind of basic practice. It's really easy to fall into reinforcing and giving a lot of attention when we're down, right? We have to do that. It's natural. It's healthy. It's healthy. But we can also give a whole lot of attention to the lifting up, to the, wow, I'm so glad you were resilient. If if you have a child that lies a lot, it's a fine balance between addressing that, but not overly giving so much attention. This is why we have kids who act up in school. They get negative attention, and attention is attention. And so one of the things that we can do to sort of shore up against this type of dysfunctional attention seeking that can develop is giving a whole lot of attention when somebody is resilient, giving a whole lot of attention, a lot of celebration, a lot of, wow, you picked yourself up or wow, you were really, really sick, but you really pushed through and you finished your homework. That makes me so proud of you. We can do a lot, I believe, to help people grow towards internal healthiness instead of this seeking to fill sort of some emptiness with this kind yeah. of attention seeking that can be such a slippery slope. What do you think?
2: Yeah. I no I I think that's really good advice and I think um you know yeah I mean I'm I'm a parent myself and actually speaking of I have my entire household other than me is sick at the moment not anything serious just just a cold just the thing that we're all dealing with right now right <laughs> of like the winter but yeah I mean I think and I want to say like I I think we don't know a lot about why people develop this behavior, but certainly the people that I've talked to and what we do know about it is that it is a pattern that develops pretty early. And there were, you know, those things I mentioned about, you know, my sister's situation where we saw it in the teenage years and the twenties. And, and those were like big examples, but I think like a lot of us when we sort of look back through the whole past can kind of see these things. And now, of course, like I also want to like, make sure that people understand that like, this is not your kids saying they're sick so that they don't want to go to school. Like that is a totally normal, like childhood. Like there, there's a range of this behavior. That's totally, totally normal. Kids play up kids. Lie flagrantly. I mean, that's you know, like my, asking my daughter if she well, just the, washed
1: her hands when she went to the bathroom. I mean, you know, like it's obviously like there's a lot of this. Well, it's their power. Right. They can't get in the car and go where they want to go. Right. So that they, they're they're playing with their personal power of being able so to funny. tell that's you no, true. no, I didn't wash my hands. I know yeah, don't have to do like, what you want me to do. Like so. <laughs> right. So there is a lot of yeah of normal playing with that power, playing with I don't yeah. have to tell you I'm my own person, and and that's yeah. a lot of power, and that that's why. It's it's a real nuanced thing to learn how to address if you've got kind of a little fibber that that's growing kind of consistently. Right. Which, you know, or is going in a stage. Yeah. And I think like, you know, also
2: like even interest in medical stuff is not is not necessarily like a huge red flag. I think what I would want parents to watch out for is a couple of things. I think, you know. Again, what you said about like, it would be nice if we just had very straightforward black and white science on all of this. We do not. That's true of many things. And I think like if parents are having, you know, a gut feeling, like one of the reasons I think it's helpful to raise awareness is to give people a name for what they might be seeing. And I don't know. It's hard to say in some of these cases whether it would have made a huge difference if it's caught Mm -hmm. earlier. Munchausen on its own is very difficult to treat but it is easier to treat than when it develops into Munchausen by proxy and you've done things that are sort of unspeakable and very hard to come back from. Right. And so I think, you know, if you have a situation where someone has pretended to have cancer, pretended to have a pregnancy and lost it, like I think putting a name to that, or even, you know, some of these early behaviors I've certainly heard about you know, that behavior developing in, in teenagers. And it's sort of getting maybe, uh, you know, played off as like, oh, well, teenagers go through stuff, whatever, you know, not whatever. But I mean, like, just thinking like, oh, well, this teenager developmental kind of thing. But I think if you see someone really, you know, gravitating overly towards medical things, gravitating towards getting attention for being sick, I think... There is treatment. I mean, there is a specific, it's unfortunately, like, I would like to see a lot more therapists learn about Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy and how to treat particularly people who are, you know, who are, who are suffering from Munchausen, because I think someone's much more likely to accept help when they're doing it to themselves, because that's a much more sympathetic, like, we're much more sympathetic to someone who's doing it to themselves than someone who's victimizing a child.
1: Well, I don't think it's a crime. Am I I correct in that? Like, we can kind of hurt ourselves. Well, it. It it can be, I mean, I
2: think there is like, it's, yeah, it's, it's doesn't fit into most definitions of a crime. I think it is a harmful behavior because you're deceiving people because you're using up medical resources that you don't need. Um, So it's harmful behavior. It usually is not a crime. Sometimes it escalates into related financial crimes of like, you know, raising $100,000 for cancer that you don't have that
1: kind of thing. Well, we have crowdfunding. I mean, what a thing to crowdfund this. That obviously is is. Criminal crowdfunding. I mean, oh, my God.
2: And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's which is I mean, I also like buyer beware on the crowdfunding thing if you don't know the person. But so I think, you know, I think, yeah, you're right. It's not a crime. The victim is the, the person themselves. It's a self harming behavior rather than child abuse I think it's a lot harder to um it's really a lot harder to sympathize mm-hmm. with a person when they're victimizing a child obviously and so because of that level of shame that kicks in and their high shame behaviors either one of them but I think like I I think a lot of times a lot of offenders that I've known about you do see that history of Munchausen behavior so I think that that is an easier thing to inter intervene on and then just to be really really aware at least of that person you know having the potential and certainly not every person with Munchausen um develops those behaviors with their kids. Some people just keep it focused on themselves. So it's not, it's not a one-to-one. But so certainly I would want therapists to um to keep an eye out for that. And I think, or excuse me, parents to keep an eye out for that. And also parents, I think just like I think moms in particular, just because we're sort of the more likely people to be interacting with other parents and seeing kids at school and all that kind of thing. But but parents of of all genders, like just being aware that this is a thing that's happening somewhere in your community. So If you have, if there is a kid, and especially if it's more than one kid, you know, in the same family who's always sick and there's always something and it's really mysterious... You know, and that's not to say to be overly suspicious of anyone who has a sick child. This behavior is very distinct from parents who have legitimately sick children. But if you are getting that weird feeling, especially if that person is posting a lot of pictures of their kids in the hospital, you know, on their, on their social media, if they're always talking about it, you know, that's the real hallmark thing of like, people say like that person just couldn't talk about anything else. It was always their illness, their kid's illness. This is what's going on, you know, just constant, constant, constant focus on it. So
1: the. The point at which it starts to become more of an identity than a thing that's happening in our lives. Yes,
2: yeah, it's it's like the rest of the person, you know, for offenders and for people that that have Munchausen, it's like the entire rest of their identity falls away. You know, like, and I think that was what when I was talking to Hopiabara's siblings, that was one of the things that we really related on. Was like we grew up with this person who we knew and loved who had, you know they had all these other things about them. They had other hobbies, they had a personality, they had this, that. And then over the years that just, it all became about illness. And I think that that is, you know, it it is, it is a very extreme thing. It's not like I've known plenty of parents that had kids that had health issues. It doesn't look like that at all. It's not. And I do think most people who are around these people have a gut feeling that something is off. They just don't have a name Mm -hmm. for it.
1: Thank you so much really, for coming, for just being out there talking about something that's really hard to talk about. I appreciate you so much.
2: Thank you, Nikki. I appreciate you too. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really honored to be able to talk to your audience.
1: You are so welcome. Okay. And if there's ever a big case and you want to come back and maybe talk talk again, I am so very open to that. I would right.
2: love that. Thank really thank light
1: <laughs> and love. Is there is there anything that you want to promote? Is there anything else you want to Plug any books you're writing that you want people to buy.
2: <laughs> if people are going to do one thing, I would say I would like you to listen to my podcast, which is nobody should believe me. That's available wherever podcasts are found. And I had a lot of help making that podcast—an amazing team with large media, and also just like all of the experts and all of the people that have been through cases that lent their voices and their experiences to that show. We're so honored that people opened up so much to us, and so I really want everyone to benefit from from their experience from their expertise. And so I really hope people will listen. I think it is is a really good introduction to the topic and a good primer on the subject um, that will help people be sort of more literate with understanding this and reading about it, etc. So you can find me uh, on Instagram at Andrea Dunlop is my handle. Um, that's always a good place to get in touch with me. That's really the only social media I do these days. And then in terms of resources for this, and if you have, if you have questions, if you have an issue, if you want training, that is uh, MunchausenSupport.com. So yes, I, and I have other books coming out. I'm also a novelist. I have, um, my next book is coming out on March 7th. That's called Women Are the Fiercest Creatures. So if you are into novels, you can also, also, uh, find find those all, wherever books are sold.
1: I want to thank Andrea for spending time with me on such an important topic. You can find out more about Andrea at Andrea Dunlop, A-N-D-R-E-A-D-U-N-L-O-P.net. Light and love. I'm an emotional badass. You are an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets mindful. I'll see you right here next time.